welcome to the Ryan Open Science Podcast. I'm Zoe Ingram. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Louisa Bington. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. So today, part two from our coverage from the Doing Good conference. And it's an, a bit lang- longer interview with Dan Quintana, who was talking about the advantages of sharing your research, well, via all channels available as soon as possible. ASAP. The faster, the better. He was talking about how even if he just has an idea, he'll put it up on Twitter and say, hey, suggestions, recommendations, is it wrong, is it right? He says sometimes he puts it out there and people say, you know, that's not going to work because, and he's not wasted all the time coming up with the plan of how to do it. So his his ideas, the sooner the better. Yeah, a confident man then. Yes, and a professor at the University of Oslo, so uh, it's working. And an excellent scientific communicator. My name is Dan Quintana, and I'm a senior researcher at the uh, Norwegian Centre for Mental Disorders Research. And uh, I primarily look at ways in which the neuropeptide oxytocin affects how we think and feel. Um, I also do a lot of work looking at cardiovascular physiology and how that affects how we think and feel. Uh, And more recently, I've gotten more interested in meta-research, which is uh, research on research. Um, And that's um, taken a little bit more of my attention recently, but primarily I'm looking at the uh, neuropeptide oxytocin. Okay, and uh, just a maybe brief summary, because it sounds so interesting. Yeah. How does it influence how we feel and... Well, it's an interesting story there. Um, originally, um, the, the story goes, or the story's been for the past decade or so, um, that um, oxytocin originally increased uh, pro-social behaviours. It would make you more trust, trusting of other people. Um, it would make you uh, generally a nicer person. So when it first came out, a lot of people were very excited. Um, a lot of couples therapists were prescribing it as a way of fixing marriages, potentially. Um, that, that, that's a nice story, but uh, of course it didn't actually turn out to be that way. Um, and uh, after the initial reports, when it came to intranasal oxytocin, um, people were like, well, it may not be a pro-social hormone because people actually found that it, it increases gloating um, and it also increases envy and it has all these negative connotations as well. So people then were like, okay, well, okay, it's not necessarily a pro-social hormone, but it's a social hormone, both negative and positive. It increases how much we actually perceive social cues in our environment. And that's been a story. But more recently, I, don't, I, I think it's even broader than that. I think it actually, well, there's actually more evidence to suggest that it, it actually influences also non-social behaviours as well. So the story is the, the story's increasing. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, I think it's really interesting the, the more recent investigations in ways it actually affects um, social and also non-social behaviours. So all these people are just breaking up their marriages after consulting. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you found out. <laughs> yeah, so no, That's it's scary. <laughs> it's yeah, a lot of people, I mean, right now we don't have any medication to actually treat social dysfunction. It's not that. Um when it when it comes to, to autism, for instance, or autism is characterized by repetitive behaviors um and also by um social dysfunction. And right now there are some medications which can treat repetitive behaviors. Um, but there's nothing to address social dysfunction. So oxytocin is, is potentially an exciting treatment, but we need a lot more work to actually understand what it does. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of really interesting animal work, which suggests that when you actually knock out the oxytocin gene or the oxytocin receptor gene, there are some very um, uh, very 
really interesting differences in social behaviour. Um, but in humans, that research hasn't exactly translated. You can't exactly knock out genes in humans, but you can actually experimentally increase oxytocin concentrations in the brain to see what that actually does when it comes to thoughts and behaviours. So it's a really interesting story. And um, more recently, my research is going, okay, well, what does it actually do? Can we look at genetics? Can we look at, at, at the historical record? Can we actually compare the genome of the human with the Neanderthal genome, for instance? Mm -hmm. Can we actually compare the genome with other animal species and actually compare how the oxytocin um, uh, gene system actually is changed? Um, what does it actually do in the body? And what does it actually do in the brain? And that's more recent. What I've been doing is actually figuring out, um, is it more than a social gene? I think it is, but um, we'll have to wait and see over the next few years. Okay. Um, we actually want to talk to you about more the meta research. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, but it was really interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, tell us about, well, actually, could you just please summarize your talk here at the Doing Goods conference in five minutes? Sure. Uh, so in this talk, I uh, shared about the fast feedback or getting using open science practices to get fast feedback on your research. Um, I highlighted that our, our current system, the current way that we actually do publications is quite slow. We, we can spend years actually working on collecting our data and, um, and, and getting feedback and actually, and actually getting our papers published. Um, and then it's only years until after the fact that you've actually come up with your idea um, that you actually get feedback that your research was useful. Um, and um, I think when it comes to open science practices, we can actually use this to get faster feedback on our work. Um, it could be by sharing our work on Twitter and getting initial feedback there, um, sharing our work as blog posts, um, and also sharing your work as preprints as well. And on top of that, it also means sharing your data and sharing your analysis scripts. So by doing that and by using open and transparent practices, you have more opportunities to get feedback on your work, which is much quicker than it is when you, than when you were using tr the, the traditional publication system. Um, quite often, a lot of people say, well, it's, it's quite a disadvantage um, using or adopting open science practices, but I actually think it's an advantage because you can get feedback much quicker from other people when it comes to, to the work that you're doing. Um, so yeah, it's one of the many advantages of open science. How do you, I mean, it's just, just something that I just thought of, um, feedback and peer review. Yeah. How do you differentiate the two? Well, yeah, well, the peer review is, is a form of feedback. Yeah. Um, but peer review is limited to the, to the three or four people who are reviewing your paper. Quite often you get good peer review, quite often you don't. Um, but by actually having it open and transparent, in principle, anyone can read your paper and get feedback there. Um, but, I mean, it, it, it is both sides of feedback. The other consideration as well is that peer review, more often than not, is closed. It's behind closed doors. It's not transparent. Very few journals are doing transparent peer review. Um, so what can happen is people who are reviewing it might be senior people in the field who may have their own pet theory that they want to protect. Your paper may be going against that theory, and they can just go, no, this isn't good. Um, this is, and they, they can actually provide quite a biased review and you have no idea why it was rejected. However, by, by, by using social media and by using commenting services and preprint servers, you can actually see who's making the comment and, and, and what the context is and you can make your own decisions there. Um, so there are a lot of similarities, but there are also a lot of differences. You raised the issue of, uh, well, the issue, the non-issue of scooping. Yes. And um, I wonder, um, so maybe just, um, can you can recap basically your thoughts on scoping and publishing pre-peer review? Yeah, um, scoping is a really big concern for a lot of people when it comes to them sharing their work publicly. 
via preprints or via data or even just their ideas publicly. Um, but I think this is an overblown concern. And although it is theoretically possible for people to scoop your work, um, it's it's a really strange way of getting credit getting credit for your work because a lot of people can actually see, well, it's public already and they can actually see that's where you actually got the idea from. Um, so even if someone does scoop, scoop your data um, by actually making your work public and timestamping it, you can actually say, no, it, this is actually my idea first. Um, so although there is a small risk of it happening, um, you, you're always going to come out looking like the better person because your idea was taken. Um, and even if it does occur, the risk of you losing citations is also quite small as well. So um, although it can seem scary that you're putting your ideas out there and someone might take your data and publish before you, um, the risks of it happening are actually quite small. And I think they're so small um, that the benefits far outweigh the risks of it actually occurring. Do you have any statistical data on it? Is there any research into it? Uh, there is some early preprint research looking at the effect of scooping um, on citations. Um, that does exist. Um, and there hasn't been any, as far as I know, hasn't been any formal research on, um, on scooping for, uh, for preprints and open data. But anecdotally, there's very few people put their hand up to say that I've been scooped. So if it's occurring, it's it's it happening at a, at a very small scale. I find this really interesting because I've heard the same arguments for, I mean, basically this fear of scooping also for a normal peer review process. Mm -hmm. So basically, I mean, for most journalists, you can, you can exclude certain reviewers, right? Yeah. Because you're afraid of scooping or these are, well, Usually it's a right competition or someone who's like extremely negative to your personality or someone, you know, just not, does not wish you well, basically. So uh, it's interesting because also there I have not really heard like really research or like really statistical data on how much people actually get scooped by submitting the, uh, the manuscripts to normal peer review journals. But there's a lot of fear of that as well, but people still do it. Uh, it's a great point. However, with, with the pre um, pre period, you well, pre prints or yeah. uh, put the there's the same fear. Basically. Okay. Yeah, and the thing is, um, I, th I think there's I think there's more of a chance that you're going to get scooped by a peer review because it's behind closed doors, and the reviewers know it. The reviewers know I can hold this paper, uh, I can hold it hostage for months, not return my peer review, steal the idea, go and publish it and submit it because I'm the fancy researcher, the editor, and I'm friends with the editor. I'm likely to get my work published before this junior researcher. That is more of a legitimate fear than actually doing it because no one's going to know. But does this really happen? Um, th once again, the reports have been, um, some people have said, it it's so hard, but some, some people have said, well, it was really suspicious because I had my paper, it was under peer review, it took a long time, all of a sudden this popped up somewhere else. Um, I saw recently an example on Twitter of this actually happening of, someone getting a paper rejected and someone who was fairly confident they knew it was a review of the paper um, actually using their ideas. Um, so it has happened, um, but I think it happens to the, to, to, to the same sort of degree as scooping public peer reviews. Um, but I think it's a lot worse because it's hard to actually track how it happened and where it happened because it's not public, it's not transparent. Mm -hmm. so we give trainings all over Europe actually in open science and uh very often to early career researchers and the, the topic of scooping always comes up. Especially in preprints. Yeah. Like the yeah. number one hand goes up. Yeah. Like, no, but what about scooping? Like the very first thing, right? Yeah. And we basically usually tell people exactly what you say, that, well, not actually, like, you put it out there, it's yours. It's like, it's clearly, and actually even like when you apply for a patent, I mean, 
they they search for this kind of I mean, mm. disclosure, right? This is the, the first disclosure or something. It's it's there, so uh, nobody can even scoop you on the patent. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. Um, I, I don't know if there's been any systematic analysis of whether it's happening during peer review, um, but, um, but like I said before, you, you, you do see some uh, anecdotal reports on, on, on Twitter and online on people whose, whose ideas have mysteriously been rejected, which pop up elsewhere. Um, but, um, but the thing is, like, that's, like you said, like, we, we readily accept that risk that's going to happen, but we don't care. Um, and it's behind closed doors, yet we're doing the preprints and it's all open and, and it's all out there. Hmm. I have to say, like, kind of from an outside perspective, I find it very strange that the first idea is, uh, am I going to get scooped? Because I wonder what the question is if you, you know, say how many people have actually had something scooped from them, how many hands are raised. But I wonder what the question is, how many people here have scooped something from someone? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's actually quite an interesting <laughs> way to put it. Like, would you scoop someone? Or... Yeah. But it's the same thing when we uh, we talk about data sharing, right? So when we ask people, are you using other people's data? Yeah. Everybody does, right? I mean, everybody goes to gene bank or whatever. I mean, like anything that I think someone else put in there to, uh, for others to use, right? Everybody's doing it happily and very, like, you know, sure, of course. Mm. Yeah. Would you share your data? Oh. That's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, where is that supposed to come from? Like, someone's, someone's going to be sharing it. Yeah. I think um, in some fields, particularly when they're working on very specific problems, like like cell biology, for instance, there there are very specific problems that a lot of people are working towards. So scooping can occur in that sense, but that that's inadvertent scooping just because there are three teams working on the same thing. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate around CRISPR. Who invented CRISPR, for instance? There were two independent teams. Um, I don't know the story that well, but basically there are two teams who were, there was a very well-known problem and now going towards that. Um, but I think for, for a lot of people, um, <laughs> we think our research is more important than it actually is. Of course, everyone's research is important, but a, a lot of people, it, it's kind of like back in high school. You'd be so concerned, you'd be going there, you have a big pimple on your forehead and you're thinking, everyone's, everyone's noticing my pimple. No, no one gives a crap. They're worrying about their own pimples. So when it comes to research, a lot, a lot of people are sort of doing their thing and they're worrying about their own research. No one's out there looking, looking and scooping. People are too busy working on their own research to go around scooping other people's research. So I think it's a little bit overblown there um, um, in that kind of sense. Could you talk about other common objections to preprints and putting your research out into the open via Twitter, for example? Yeah, I mean, of course, there, to, to, to give a recent example, there was a preprint that came out about two weeks ago, and it was very critical um, of pre-registration. Um, the title was Pre-Registration is Redundant at Best. Um, so it was um, what many would call, what many called it a, 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 a clickbaity title. Um, the, the, the substance of the paper was very interesting. Um, they made some, some very good arguments as to why people should consider um, forms of research which, which aren't necessarily hypothesis-driven research. Um, however, that drew a lot of debate and there was a lot of debate about the debate. Um, and so quite often there can be a lot of negativity on Twitter. That happens. Um, not, not all accounts, um, some, some accounts are anonymous and some people are saying some pretty nasty stuff and I'm not going to pretend that doesn't happen. Um, so there is, there is a risk of there being a lot of, um, critical discussion on, on, on Twitter. Um, and unfortunately there, there is no way of actually, um, if people weren't anonymous, I guess that would help a little bit. But even so, um, people who are using their real names can be quite nasty on Twitter. So unfortunately, that happens. Um, but at least when it comes to people who are using their real names, at least it's transparent. You can see who, who was saying these nasty things. I, d I don't think Twitter has made people nasty. Twitter has just made it transparent who was nasty. Well, this is basically um, 
the same. I mean, this is the same argument for when talking about social media in general. It's yeah. like it does not it does not really create a special behavior. It's just basically it mirrors what whatever is going on. If you're, if you're an asshole in the lab, you're going to be an asshole exactly. online. And I was just want to come with that. I mean, like going to certain conferences. It really depends. Some people are just nasty for nasty's sake. Um, other times they are making a good point, but they may have used, they, they could have used different words to, to, to make that point. I think it, it all comes down to the, to the fact of, you know, crit crit critique the research, not the researcher. As soon as you're critiquing the research, then you're going down a bad path. But as long as you're, if you're critiquing the research, then, then I think it's okay. Like calling a, re a researcher stupid is, is, is never the way to go. Um, maybe saying that was possible that that was possibly a, a, a stupid analysis decision is, is is still a bit of a gray area, but that that's a little bit better than actually attacking the researcher as well. But look, th th there are no hard and fast rules on, on how to do this, um, and um, yes, yeah, some people cross the line. So the point is, with the common objections, would be uh, I'm scared to put myself out there because I might get bashed, and the other one is putting myself out there could have the impact that it becomes controversial. Um, okay, so yeah, look, there, there there is a risk that is going to happen, but like you said, even at conferences, that that's already happening. Um, people sometimes, in many cases, senior people can be quite nice to junior people, um, and unfortunately, that's that that's what's happening. It's not it's not a good thing. But like I said before, this is happening behind closed conference doors, and people and people can't really see that. But on Twitter, you can actually see what's happening. It doesn't excuse the behaviour, um, but it doesn't see what's happening. Um, but the the risk of that happening is is still relatively small and most people I've talked to um, have generally have good experiences. Of course, a lot of people have bad experiences. Um, I've been told I'm, I'm an idiot on Twitter um, with a lot of my research. You're wrong. You're, you're researching the wrong thing. Um, and I believe in academia, you have to have a thick skin. Um, I get told I'm wrong all the time, but I just, I just shake it off. But I understand for a lot of people that can be difficult. Um, but you can have exactly the same thing when it comes to peer review. Within peer review, you're told you're wrong. You're told, in, in other words, you're told you're stupid. Um, and same thing in conferences. So it, it's really just 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 accelerating the the, the sort of critical feedback that, you, that you're probably going to be getting anyway within the within the typical peer review process. But this is the job as a scientist in a way. I mean, I'm not saying you're nasty, but like to critique each other's work. Yeah. Not each other. That's that's the big distinction. Which actually brings me to something I I've just been thinking about because you said in your in your talk today. Um, a very valuable comment. Um, well, if you're afraid of putting it out there because you're afraid of being criticized, don't put yourself out there, put your research out there. Mm. And I found it very, very interesting, very valuable comment because this is something that's not usually being told to scientists. Uh, usually being told, put the human be behind the research out there, right? Mm. Because people want to see the, the human. The, that's how we get people interested in work when you show yourself and who you are and so on. Yeah. Interestingly, we did a public survey also in the framework of our learning project in six European countries, and we asked people what interests them, what they're most interested in 
from science, like from topics. What's 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 the what's the part of science or scientific process that interests them most? And you gave them several options, and definitely topics and methods, like findings and methods. That's that's the, what people want to hear. And the person behind it was not really like top. I see. That's interesting. Priority, which which is interesting because the the science communication community always says, you know, like bring the human. Yeah. Talk about feelings, emotions. I mean, that's how you reach people with emotions, but. Um, yeah, I'm kind of in two minds about that. Like, I, st I still think you can bring a lot of value on Twitter and social media without actually putting the person behind it. It certainly helps, and in a lot of circumstances, it can make things a little bit more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, uh, per personally, I do a bit of a mix. I sort of try and, like, humanise the, the, the person behind the research, but also highlight the research itself. Um, but I don't, think it's, I don't think it's completely necessary. And a lot of people want to separate their, 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 their personal lives from... Um, from the professional lives, and that's fine. And I, I think as well that's what's been hindering um, a lot of science communication on Facebook because a lot of people use Facebook for, you know, catching up with their friends who are overseas and what have you. Um, but they, 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 they want to separate that from, um, from, from what they're doing professionally, um, whereas on Twitter it's, it's much more, it's much easier to actually have that sort of separate professional account, so to speak, um, uh, versus that personal account. But... I, I think both options are, are a bit better. And like some people, you know, they're always sharing pictures of their family. That's great. I do occasionally, but not 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 too much. Um, but it's up to you. But I, st I still think you can uh, bring a lot of value just by sharing your research. I also find it very fascinating um, that after your talk, and it was a time for questions. Um, basically, like it was like the feeling, the atmosphere in the room was like your person nodding. Was like yeah, yeah, oh yeah, right, right. So it's like. Of course, and it's like so logical and like so clear, like this is the way. Like all the questions were like, yeah, it's good, but. <laughs> so uh, what are the buts out there um, that you've heard? Uh, why not communicate? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it comes around these, these circumstances where um, people get criticised online um, and people don't like getting criticised. Like that's, 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 that's just how it is. Um, and um, like I said, that, that can be quite a concern. Um, um, you know, especially like how, how much do you share as well? Um, and pe people are risk averse. They, 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 they see the benefits and like, oh, that, 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 that's great. But then they hear that, um, it, it's the same sort of thing. Like you, you hear there's like a, there's a shark attack and you don't want to go swimming, but the, the risk of you getting hit by a car crossing the road is, is much more. These, these shocking ways to die are much more evident in our minds, much in the same way that the idea of, of being at the end of a Twitter mob is, 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 is really bad. And of course it's bad. Um, but but the risk of that happening is is is, is minimal. Um, so yeah, it's 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 natural. And I mean, what's the alternative? People aren't going to go. Oh, that, that that that's great, and I completely agree with that. That that, that tends not to happen in presentations. But people, of course, are going to voice their concerns, which 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 is fine. Is this a is this a generational problem? You think, or is it maybe also something that basically we've been doing science in a certain way, and it's kind of like I mean, it's kind of working, not really, like you know tends to work less and less, like when you actually look at it properly. But, you know, like, why change the, the, you know, the winning words, the winning team, or whatever expression of language? Well, well, of course you wouldn't want to change how it's done if the system's benefiting you. And I think that a lot of the resistance behind this is actually from people who the system has benefited. The gatekeepers don't want to change because the gatekeeping is working really well for them. Um, so that's where the resistance is coming from. But the great thing about social media is that it's a great way to organise a lot of people who are like-minded. Um, so the reason that we're actually getting a lot of these open science reforms is not from the top down, I mean, which is great, and which is actually the most efficient way of doing it. If we have um, uh, funders and institutions 
um, who, who are push, pushing these reforms, it's going to be much quicker, but it's actually happening from the grassroots up. And because of social media, a lot of people can organise, a lot of people can share their experiences and a lot of people can share their resources. Um, so a lot of these open science ideas have been around since, since the 70s. Um, these ideas aren't new, but we didn't actually have the technology and the means to actually communicate these things um, up until about sort of five to 10 years ago. Um, so now we actually, the ideas are old, but now we actually have the ways of actually of, of implementing them. So that, that that's working really well in that sense. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's easy to sort of blame the whole generational thing, um, but it, it's more of a case of, well, the system's working fine for them. But of course, like, if, if, if the system's working great for you, why would you want to change anything? Not, not from a selfish aspect, but it's because you don't actually see what's happening for people who are more junior. When you're more senior and all you know is this system's working fine, then you, there's no way of sort of changing your perspective um, unless you have students under you who are going, yeah, this is what the reality is like. So I can understand that. And what would you say to the people who say, well, I don't really have anything to share? Um, I think it's just as interesting, if not more interesting, to share your process, to share what you're working on, to share what papers are interested, the, the papers that you're currently reading, sharing links to those papers, sharing the tools that you're currently using, um, and sharing the process along the way. Um, I, I think that can be, the, the, there's, there's always something that you can share. Like, you know, what did you do today at work? Well, I caught up on some papers and I did some data analysis. Okay, well, there you go. What tools did you use to, to do your data analysis? You can say, oh, I found this great new package on uh, our package to do my analysis. Um, and if you found it useful, then chances are the people that you follow will also find it useful as well. So sharing that process of how you're actually doing it. And if you want to get a bit more personal, you can do that. You can, you can share your frustrations. Oh, I got, I got another paper rejection today. Um, or uh, uh, heard someone say this, or all that kind of stuff. There, there's a lot of ways you can actually share your research with, without, without actually waiting till that final. Here is my publication. Um, I think that's that's sometimes a little bit boring. Um, you know, quite often you can you can see a lot of more senior professors are told by their institutions, "You must be on Twitter." And then what you'll find is once a month they'll pop up and they'll be like, "Here is our paper link. That's it." And you won't see him again. Yeah, that's, that's great. People can share their work that way. Um, but I don't think that's interesting than actually sharing your process um, because then people can actually go, well, you know, I'm sort of in the same research area, that tool's handy or that paper's handy. Um, th th there's always something that you can share. Oh, I'm curious. Um, so um, you were a senior researcher, so yeah. you have a lab. Uh, a small lab. Okay, a, a, lab a lab of one student. They have one student. <laughs> okay. Uh, is the student on Twitter? Yes. Okay. Uh, would you encourage like anybody who would join your lab to like first thing like is here Twitter account and? I would encourage them. Oh, it's not mandatory. No, but I mean, yeah, but it, yeah, something you would be like saying, okay, this is important. Yes, yeah. So it's something that 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 I encourage people, um, both within my lab but also within my wider group. Um, so I'm I'm a very strong advocate within my center of going. Yeah, this is, this can actually be really good for your career. Um, so I'd occasionally do workshops at my center on on how to do these things as well. Um, so yeah. Very, very strong advocate. There's even a survey from the from the Swedish Evans uh, Island yet, which is like a science and society um, dialogue organization. Um, they did a survey among researchers in Sweden and asked them how much science communication they're doing and also what obstacles they have encountered. Yeah. And I'm not sure whether the results are they completely out there. There's some summaries out there, but um, basically there's one uh, key issue that came up and it's this is also known as anecdotal evidence, time. We don't have time. Um, we don't have time for this. So how do you find time? Um, I, I think it's not a matter of finding time. I think it's a matter of switching priorities. Um, so for me, um, I don't spend all my day on Twitter. 
um, or all my day in social media, all my day podcasting or editing podcasts. But um, I would maybe sort of spend 10 to 15% doing that um, because I think it's an important way of communicating both with the public but also with other scientists. It, during some periods, I will remove Twitter from my phone. So if I've got a very um, an upcoming grant deadline or paper deadline, um, I will just remove it from my phone and only only tweet from my, my, my desktop computer, for instance. Because um, I recognise that, yeah, it can, it, it, it can be addictive. Um, but if you spend all your time on, on Twitter, you'll have no time to actually share the research that you're sharing on Twitter. So it's important, it, it, of course, it's important to be doing both. Um, and to sort of... To, 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 Everyone, you know, have, have, has a different risk of becoming sort of more hooked on Twitter than than, than not. Um, so for me, I just use a number of tools. Um, I use an app on my phone called Forest, which which, which blocks off its use. So for, for forty five minutes, there's a little app and it goes, and you grow little trees. It sounds very cutesy, but it actually works. And then if you actually close the app, then your tree dies. And your goal is to to, to plant as many trees in your forest across the week, across the months, across the days. Um, and that's what I do. So I turn this thing on. 45 minutes and I work. Internet off. Calls can still come through. If my wife needs to contact me, she can still get through. Um, and on my computer, I have a similar app called Self Control. 45 minutes, I turn it on. I cannot access any social media sites. I can access any email. I just get, I just get to work. Um, and that's what I do. Um, so I, I put plans in place because I know myself that I'm too tempted. So if I'm working on like, oh, I wonder if anything's interesting on Twitter, pick up the phone. Before I know it, I'll be there for like 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. But by forcing myself, by putting tools ahead of place, ahead of time, makes it much easier to actually have that control. So 45 minutes, work, 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 take a bit of a break, 10, 15 minutes, see what's going on, and then back to work again. Let's just uh, recap, because this is really important piece of information for us to the phone and... Uh, self-control. Self-control. Yeah, it's, it's on Mac and I think it's on PC as well, and Forrest is on, on Android too. So and it's something... Recap for the break also, then something that is controlling the break? Um, yeah, so then there, there's a few, um, I just sort of keep an eye that it's been sort of 10, 15 minutes until I sort of feel refreshed, but you, usually it's 10, 15 minutes. Um, the, the, the Pomodoro technique has, has, has been, has been amazing for me. Mm-hmm. I, so basically it's this idea that you sort of, you, you work for 40 minutes or for 30 minutes and then you have a break for sort of 10 to 15. However, the, however long the work period is and the break period is, is up to you. Um, you sort of find your, your sweet spot. And so for me, um, I did an experiment a year or two ago where I figured out, okay, how, how much can I work in a given day? How much work can I put in? So for, for about a month, I did very, very strict Pomodoros where 40 minutes on, 20 minutes off, and I would time at the end of the day, how many Pomodoros can I do until I'm completely fried? My brain just goes, nothing. And, and I realized my limit was seven hours of work. I cannot do more than seven hours of work after that, the work is just crap. It's horrible. My mind is somewhere else. And the benefit of that is that after I've done my Pomodoros at night, I don't feel any guilt. Mm-hmm. On the weekends, I don't feel any guilt because I know I've done the best work that I can do for that given day. And on the weekends, I can spend time with my family, no guilt whatsoever, hang out with my wife. And as academics, it's, it's so hard. Like we have, we have the perfect job in that we can work whenever we want. But unfortunately, it means that we work forever. We work at night. We work over the weekends. But... By having this Pomodoro technique, I can keep track and I know exactly how much I've worked during the day and have, have guilt-free nights and, and guilt-free weekends. If, if people are interested to hear more about the scientific life, they can listen to the podcast that I co-host called Everything Hurts. Um, people can search on their, on their podcast app. 
Um, so twice a month, we, um, either myself and my colleague James, who I did my PhD with, but now he's over in, in Boston, um, we, 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 we chat about issues just like this. Um, and, and occasionally we get, we get guests on as well. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, so it's a lot of fun. And then I also have a, a, another podcast where I focus more on research and what I do on oxytocin and heart rate variability or cardiac psychophysiology. And that's called Physiology and Behaviour. So people can find that uh, on, uh, on, on, on their uh, app stores. Um, and people can also follow me on Twitter at DS Quintana if they want to um, follow what I'm doing there as well. We put all the links in the show notes. Perfect. So one thing I really liked when I was listening to the interview you guys did with Dan was that at the beginning you asked him about his research and to explain his research and he could explain it really clearly and really easily um, and I guess it's kind of the there's a phrase in in English uh, the proof is in the pudding mm -hmm. I don't know, it's a cooking metaphor I don't make puddings <laughs> but basically it means if something works it'll be obvious the result will be obvious so the fact that he can communicate science so clearly and easily just like that, when you asked him, I think shows the benefit of this feedback loop of constantly kind of being able to just share your research and being comfortable with that. And you know what? And he also now just, I mean, through that, I now just understood the phrase, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> We've all learned something today. Yes. <laughs> he is really good at communicating science. And yeah, it's... I don't know. I don't know like where it starts. Basically, I, do you have to be really good communicator to start communicating, or do you become a very good communicator through communicating? Maybe it's both, but um, definitely could be like a prime example of like yeah, proof is in the pudding. So. Yeah, I think yeah. practice makes perfect as well. As mm -hmm. in point, because he does have his own podcast, and he continuously is uh, engaging with the public. Yeah, I mean, I think if you've never done something, you're not going to be particularly good at it. I mean, it's not like, <laughs> I mean, of course, that doesn't apply to us. But we, 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 I think, have definitely improved as a podcasting team. Um, so, I think, you know, you do something often enough, you do get better at it. So. I, I really like the boldness of his approach. Just like, you know, I, this is this whole scooping idea. It just comes up over and over and over again. And it's really the point he made in one of his slides. He has this. Okay. So imagine you would be stealing an idea from someone because you saw it on Twitter or preprint or whatever, and then you would publish it. But it's like basically like stealing while everybody's watching. Sure. They just don't do it really. And people do, but it's like it's so obvious. Yeah, yeah. it's the most stupid way of stealing something. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really like this this um, he was also, very pragmatic approach to, you know, like just He also had a picture of a beautiful beach in Australia. And then he said like getting scooped is as likely as getting stung by a jellyfish. It happens, but very rarely. But I find it really interesting that it's always this question about being scooped. I don't understand where this fascination of it comes from. It's really this fear of like mine, mine, mine. I've been working so long on it and like someone comes and takes it and then everything is lost. But also even like if you talk to people who've been scooped, it's bad. It's not a, not a good feeling, but it's not the worst thing because, I mean, you can also see it this way. You're actually working on something real because some other person also working on it and getting the same results. I mean, so I mean, I was very happy when I was uh, still in research, and I was basically every 
paper I did, someone else published something similar or taking this story to a different level, basically. And for me, that was, I mean, with one paper, I was kind of in this panic of like, oh, there's other group working on it. I knew about them and who's going to publish first, you know? And and then like we both published and it wasn't like nature paper anyways, but uh, realizing that it's like a perfect complementary like story. It's not, it's just two ways of approaching a problem and was like, it was, yeah, the same result, which was like, wow, great. I actually saw something real. It's not an artifact or wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. And how did you guys deal with that? Like, did you? I published first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not helping. <laughs> no, but I mean, that. so you published first and then they published and then, yeah. and then you guys uh, in some way collaborated with each other or said, hey, they're doing something interesting over there that complements my research. I mean, how did you guys deal with it? Yeah, so I mean, basically I left the lab shortly after uh so I, I i went from us back to germany um so but my my lab back in us they were collaborating with them so. okay. which is the obvious answer if someone's working on something that fits with your research don't make it a competition collaborate yeah. because you'll have a much stronger paper and they can check your data you can check theirs and you know yeah it's not so much about the paper in itself i mean when i was pgc and so i thought it was like about papers publishing whatever it's not about that it's actually like you know how do you know that what you're working on is actual real biological problem mm. that you're actually like looking at and solving finding solutions so and that's what i found good about this conference doing good because it was also about all these tools how do you check your reality basically that you know that what you're looking at is actually real it's actually happening the biology is really there and it's telling you something as opposed to just uh, statistics that you play with and kind of think that you're seeing something. Mm -hmm. You know, so like having this, um, yeah, having this feedback of kind of like checking mechanism, which communicating also is, right? Because, I mean, as Dan was saying, if you put your research out in the open and people can comment on it, on your ideas, on your processes, on on your methods, on your whatever, all, all of it, right? On your results in the end. Um, it's a different story as if you just, work ahead in your little peer group of your lab, you know, where everybody has the same kind of thinking, yeah. more or less, and, you know, you're convinced of your hypothesis or project because everybody's working on it, right? And um, it's, it's a different kind of reality check if you take it out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he made another interesting um, statement, and that was if you, if you're citing someone, then you always have the option, if you put it out there in the beginning, to contact that person and say, hey, I cited you, can you look at it and see if what I said makes sense? And he said, you know, he sees sometimes papers, somebody cited him, but it's already been printed, and they didn't exactly get his message across 100%. And if it's, you know, in the feedback loop, you still have the time to correct it, so you do make science also better by doing that's it for today. This concludes our two-part story from coverage from the Doing Good conference. And it's also the, also the last episode for the year, actually. Sad noises. We were going to do a Christmas special, but none of us were around. But uh, it was a pleasure this year. Um, long, um, sometimes painful journey. Um, I hope we're improving as Emma was postulating before. Um, Anyways, if you have any comments, suggestions, ideas for the next year's uh, edition of this podcast, please write to us. You can find us on Twitter at OOSP underscore OrionPod. Or you can write us an email to Orion at MDC minus or dash Berlin dot D. 
And um, as always, the music was composed and recorded by Fabio de Miguel. And the sound editing is done by Paula Oliveira. And the podcast is brought to you by the Orion Open Science Project and is being recorded at the Max Delbuck Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin. We hope you join us next year. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Hope you had a good decade. See you in 2020. It's the roaring 20s, guys. It's coming. Also, Happy New Year as well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye. Bye.